the massive change that came was in the 20th century with the Soviet Union, because as Kazakhstan became part of the Soviet Union, then a whole series of very, very large scale transformations took place. So 45 million hectares of land within Kazakhstan was simply ploughed under the Virgin Lands campaign. Welcome to another episode of Rewilding the World with Ben Goldsmith. I've been so excited about this conversation with Mark Day, who works with the RSPB, has been there for 15 years, and is in the process of delivering a restoration project across an area almost inconceivably huge, 180 million acres or 75 million hectares in Kazakhstan, Central Asia. One of the most remarkable things about this project in Kazakhstan is the tremendous support that Mark and his team have secured from the United Nations, no less. This is an area sort of the size, I guess, mark of Germany and France combined. An area known as the Altindala, a huge grassland that once may have rivaled the Serengeti or the other famous East African grasslands that are today thronged with wildlife. A place that was once full of saiger antelope and Bactrian camels and predators included wolves and cheetahs. A place that has been empty for at least a century, probably longer. And quietly, the RSPB, Frankfurt Zoological Society and others are starting to rebuild it in partnership with the Kazakh government. And Mark is at the centre of this extraordinary story. And so, Mark, I'm so grateful to have you with us. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be here and, and to help tell more of the story of, of Altindala, which is now quite long running. Mark, you began at Fauna and Flora International, but you've been at the RSPB for 15 years. How did you come to be working on the Altindala project in Kazakhstan? Well, the way all, all of the work begins is through partnerships. So the RSPB is a partner of BirdLife International. And as part of the work with them, it was identified that there was a big gap in data and knowledge from Central Asia. So we were invited to go in and work alongside uh, Kazakh scientists and Turkmen and, and also Uzbek scientists to develop and identify a whole series of what are called important bird areas. So the key sites for birds within those countries of Central Asia. And what that identified was two things. One was that there was a lot of latent interest in developing civil society. There was also a great need to understand the conservation needs of certain species, including a, a beautiful bird called the sociable lapwing, which breeds almost exclusively in Kazakhstan, but was critically endangered uh, at the time. So those two pieces of work led to firstly the creation of our civil society partner organization, uh, which is called uh, the Association for the Conservation of the Biodiversity of Kazakhstan, or as it's quite a mouthful, ACBK for short. And it also then, with, in partnership with them and with the government from the beginning, understood and recognized that actually there was needed to be work at very large scale really to start to restore some of the lost species, some of the lost ecological functions, and to really bring back to the fore the Kazakh nature that the people of the country absolutely love and absolutely value. During this podcast series, we've talked about the Arabian Peninsula. And it strikes me that, that as well as overgrazing today, which maintains that landscape in a, in a state of degradation across uh, large parts of the peninsula. The big turning point in terms of the loss of wildlife was the arrival of guns and motor transport. What happened in the Altindala landscape? Where did all the wildlife go and when? So 
obviously go but going back over time this was a during the you know 10,000 years plus ago there was a very different fauna there with the mammoths from the glacial period and the steppe bison and many other species and that was pretty much intact because the kazakh nomads who lived across the steppe historically they were obviously harvesting things in a sustainable way. The massive change that came was in the 20th century with the Soviet Union, because as Kazakhstan became part of the Soviet Union, then a whole series of very, very large-scale transformations took place. So 45 million hectares of land within Kazakhstan was simply ploughed under the Virgin Lands campaign to turn grassland into arable land. So phenomenal-scale change, biggest anywhere in the world. And that, plus the associated collective farming that went in, all of the other hunting that went in, all of those things basically drove out all of the, the first original wildlife structure. And that was a short-lived experiment, right? The, the arable farming wasn't a huge success. The collectivization of farming didn't work out. And so with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that new farmland was abandoned. Not entirely, but in many cases, yes. And of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union created or recreated the collection of individual countries. The difficulty there was that at the beginning, as any country would struggle, there was a really a, a lack of structure initially. What that did was it left open a very huge gap for organised crime. And at that point, organised crime very much moved in in order to harvest or, or poach because it was technically illegal, to poach the saiga antelope, which was the last remaining species that had survived on that steppe after all of the others had been hunted out one way or another, simply during the Soviet period. The difficulty with the poaching was it, the country is enormous, and therefore the difficulty of actually looking after wildlife at this scale is a phenomenal challenge. But equally, it's only the male of the saiga antelope that has the horns. And these horns were, were collected up and then shipped illegally into Chinese traditional medicine for use outside of the country. What that meant was that all of the males were targeted. So that you had a collapse of the population, partly because of the you know, because of the hunting, but also because the species couldn't breed normally. What followed as a very clear cascade, it wasn't measured at the time, but it's very natural to understand it now, is that once the final wild grazer was gone, down to tiny, tiny remainders of the population, then of course the scavengers disappeared. There was nothing for them to to scavenge, and the predators also stepped back and you know fell down in their populations as well so overall a kind of cascade of collapses some direct and some indirect but you get to about 2005 and really when this was the first time i was ever out on the kazakh steppe is it was empty it was beautiful and it was intact in most areas but it was empty there was very little life there and of course the altin dala means golden step on account of its extraordinary beauty uh, so we can just imagine what that grassland might once have been like and, and what it could be like again. So the saiga antelope, in spite of a hiccup with a terrible disease that wiped out a large number of the remaining individuals, has undergone something of a recovery in the last decade. How many saiga are there today and how many could there be in the project area? Well, when we started the programme of work, the estimate was certainly less than 50,000 individuals and probably less than 25,000 individuals. The combination of the government's work on anti-poaching, the government actually then establishing protected areas and 
cooperating with the civil society partners in this work meant that the recovery of the species is possible. So whether it's intercepting smuggling on the border, whether it's actually inter police or border force intercepting smugglers and poachers and the enforcement of those laws, it's meant that the population has space to breathe and to recover. Now, it is quite remarkable, but the ecology of the saga is very unusual. So we're in May and a baby saga born now, a female, will be mating in December at six months old and will give birth at a year old. So an astonishing reproductive ecology, which allows for the recovery of species. If you then add the fact that the predators were still very much suppressed as a population, it means there's no holds barred on the recovery of the population of Saiga. So we saw steady, steady recovery and then really exponential growth. So the population last year at the estimate was up to 1.32 million individuals back on the step. However, that's in a small proportion of the 75 million hectare project area that they originally occupied. So we're still modelling the numbers, but we know that there is significant growth yet to come in that Saiga population. And we're already starting to see the benefits of that natural grazer going back across the steppe because that then opens up other possibilities. But certainly at the moment, we really have a situation where the population is growing very strongly and we're seeing all sorts of side benefits from that species recovery. And it's really down to the work of the government and to the work of the partnership as well. And, and so there could be tens of millions of saiga antelope in the future across the area. Do you need to move them around? Is there any case for kind of translocation to different parts of the park? The area of the project isn't, obviously, it's, it's, these are massive landscapes. So we're not looking to protect the whole of that landscape. We're looking for it to be managed well and effectively. So some areas will be conserved in protected areas. And as a partnership, we've secured over 5 million hectares so far. But there's also areas where they migrate. So there are, there are migratory species because the climate is so extreme in Kazakhstan. In the summer, it's over plus 40. So they typically migrate north whereas in the winter those temperatures plummet down into minus 40 sometimes lower so again then they migrate south into the more desert areas now these landscapes are being allowed or will allow for now major migrations over time but there are certain areas where they will come into direct contact with more people so areas that are still agricultural or areas where there is still livestock and of course in then there is a situation where well, do we look at ways to move them away using deterrence of some kind? You can't fence an area this big, obviously. Yeah. What, Mark, were the other grazers that were present alongside the saiga? I mean, the wild ass is particularly fascinating, the, the, the effectively a wild donkey, right? No, absolutely. So it's called the Kulan in uh, Central Asia. And that's a wild donkey that used to range across right the way through um, from Mongolia and China, right through West far west, certainly into Ukraine, into Russia, far, much further west. Now that was eliminated. It depends. People were hunting them for food in certain cases. And they now persist really only in one major protected area in the east of Kazakhstan, in a national uh, park in the east of Kazakhstan. They are now being steadily translocated out from a healthy population to now re-establish populations further west uh, in central Kazakhstan. So they were there and they're incredibly tough creatures. And I've been fortunate enough to see this 
sort of parent herd, over 3,000 animals strong. It's a really impressive thing to see. And we know that because there's no limit to the grazing, that we hope that we can establish these other large populations uh, further west across central Kazakhstan. But the most enigmatic for me of, of all of the grazers is the Presvalsky's horses. And these were there originally. Obviously, this is the species that, you know, over around 7,000 years ago, these were the species that were domesticated. You know, just imagine you know, how much change there was in human history because of the domestication of the horse and how far and wide that effect, those effects have, have run. But that happened in West Kazakhstan, in the area we work now. The difficulty and why they were lost from the country and they are extinct nationally was because they're so tough and as a species, they interact in a very damaging way with domestic horses. And obviously domestic horses now are part of the economy and part of people's livelihoods. But historically, during the the uh, 20th century, in the very early 20th century, they they were eliminated because they were too much of a threat to domestic horses. That's why they disappeared. What sort of numbers are we talking in terms of Kulan and Prezalski's horses today in total? And how many could the landscape of the project accommodate? There are no Prezalski's horses left uh, in Kazakhstan at all. There is, there, this is very much in the captive populations in uh, zoos in Europe and, and elsewhere. Uh, so that's very much uh, the issue of reintroduction, complete reintroduction, which brings a lot of complexity with it. And because the interactions between the wild horses and domestic horses, the areas are now being investigated by the government to look at what where might be possible, because there are going to be limits in that sense. For the Kulan, it's that's more open because they're not a species that has conflict with people in any way, in which case there are estimated 3,000 in southeast Kazakhstan now in one protected area. And the government and us as a partnership, a wider partnership, we're all keen to then move some of those individuals out to help re-establish new populations. But I should say there's one other group of grazers that we're also interested in, and you don't really think of them as grazers, and these are all the ground squirrels. So these grassland ecosystems are are dominated by small mammals that burrow into the ground. They come up and they graze the vegetation in the grass and then they hibernate all through the winter. Now, these are obviously vitally important for both reptiles in the southern, more southern areas as a prey species, but also for large numbers of predatory birds. So what happened historically was very similar to what happened in parts of the USA, so areas where you had lots of domestic livestock, where they were breaking their ankles or injuring themselves in the holes of these small mammals, then of course you poison them out so that you actually try and clear up the mammals so they got less damage to the domestic livestock. And an added area of complexity for Kazakhstan is that there are also marmots, which are much bigger ground squirrels, and they are hosts of bubonic plague. So as a species, they were being removed as a human health issues now so obviously these grazers which are fundamental kind of ecosystem engineers they're missing from large areas as a result of that historic persecution are they completely missing no it's patchy so there are some areas where the species are maintained and that's absolutely fine but because they're so small and they don't travel large distances easily once they've been eliminated from an area it seems that they actually require uh, effectively a, a translocation and that's important in terms of bringing together the grazers along with the predators of different sizes and the scavengers. They're an important part of the puzzle that, that we're just really starting to investigate in more detail now. 
So what does it look like, a translocation of marmots or ground squirrels and so on? Is, is that a program which is already underway? And in what sort of numbers, how do you do it? So it's not underway in Kazakhstan yet. And we're learning from work in Bulgaria, actually, where they're looking at uh, grassland, wild grassland areas that are being developed in one way or another. And they've actually got a well-established system of translocating within a day uh, using humane traps and then using humane release methods. But actually, there's quite good success. So I've literally just come back from Bulgaria looking at one of these projects to help understand, you know, we've all got to learn from each other. We can't do this all from scratch. So it's really important to try to understand what does good practice look like elsewhere and how can we practice that in Kazakhstan, but equally where we're a little bit ahead in some areas, then we're obviously they're open to share our knowledge as well. well what about camelids, Mark? The, the, the Bactrian camels used to be on the Altindala area. How long ago? What happened to them? And are, are they going to get brought back? Again, the the with the wild camels, there are no remaining wild camels in Kazakhstan. They were basically taken into domestic use and they were the wild population disappeared the only wild bacterian camels now are in china however when some areas are abandoned then some camels have gone feral and so there are camel populations in the south are they the same species of camel that, that were there previously they are they're so they're basically domesticated bacterian camel so these are camels that were wild all over Central Asia and into Kazakhstan included. And then they were domesticated. And then some of them have then gone wild again. They've gone feral. So again, what, what we realize and what we've learned over the last 15 years is that each of these processes for either reestablishing a species or helping it to recover, that actually everyone is unique. And so we're, we're taking each step at the time. And we've obviously primarily focused on Saiga, but because that's now so well advanced and working so beautifully and with such remarkable results, now we're able to, able to refocus our efforts uh, onto these other species and also to really measure the benefits of the, the passive benefits. So we're noticing, for example, the, the nests of the steppe eagle, which is an iconic species, really important in Kazakh culture and even on the flag. We're noticing that the nests of these species are full of the bones of saiga. So when saiga die on the steppe, for example. So we some things we will need to actively restore or actively translocate or reintroduce, whereas other things will simply recover in a natural way as the balance of uh, ecology is, is restruck. What are the biggest obstacles for this work, Mark? Is it, is it funding or is it political will on the part of the Kazakh government? Is it caution among conservationists? I think there are different barriers according to different work areas. What is amazing is we've had a partnership with the government from the beginning and they have been remarkably positive working with us. And as I said, they've already dedicated huge resources in anti-poaching. They've already dedicated and continue to dedicate large amounts of support in terms of the protected areas. They are ambitious in order to do more, but nevertheless, every government has constraints financially. So what we're finding is that one of the barriers is external funding. So we're now trying to attract 
and secure large-scale funding in order to help the government realise its ambitions in a in a partnership way. And that's working very nicely. And with the new protected area that's just been established last year, that was a partnership between the government, ACBK, ourselves, and then with all the funding coming from the from the Weiss Foundation. So that type of barrier can be overcome now. And as our profile grows, there's more interest and hopefully more investment. I think a barrier is simply that the scale is so enormous that we have to pick our targets and our work areas really carefully so that we're not trying to do everything at once. We're trying to do it in a good sequence. We had an initial focus very much on central Kazakhstan. Now we've moved very much to the West at the moment. So we have to kind of pace ourselves the third barrier is, and it's not about capability, this, we have wonderful Kazakh colleagues to work with, but it's about capacity. So this is a young country with a young demographic population and only 19 million people in total. So the amount of people who are trained in restoration, in rewilding, in ecology, in monitoring, in all of the aspects that is needed in a program of this size and complexity is naturally limited. So that's the barrier. And we're looking to find new ways to invest in training the young Kazakhs who are keen, but don't necessarily have all the experience and all the skills they need yet. I mean, I just even for me sitting here talking to you now, it's almost overwhelming the, the amount that you've got to do and, and just the prospect of restoring a grassland on that scale with huge herds of saiger and camels and donkeys. It, it sort of feels Pleistocene in its scale and ambition. And I am. Um, I'd love to talk through the carnivores, but I'd like to savor each one if we could. If we could, <laughs> okay. So, so presumably the, the the Eurasian wolf is already present in the landscape in reasonable numbers. Yes, so they've been present there the whole time. They've been as often the apex predators are. They were historically targeted and persecuted because they threatened people's livelihoods, at least, and that is, was through the Soviet era into the into the new era of Kazakhstan. That's happened for some time. However, that's now changed. So the wolf is no longer considered a pest species. And the ability of the wolves to then help regulate other key species is vital. They are incredibly wary animals and it is legal to hunt them, but it's no longer there's no longer a price on their head. So that's a species that as the wildlife recovers they should also recover. But obviously, the interesting thing is that as far as the wildlife is concerned, in winter, they're the apex predator. But in summer, they wouldn't have originally been that. That's not the original apex predator. They were very much the scavengers on the margins or around the rivers or in the forests. Whereas on the steppe, that's not that they weren't the top predator ever. So what, what was the top predator on the steppe? And, and is it going to come back? Well, there were two top predators, really. The first, which was only in the river systems and on the edges of the wetlands where the saiga would have aggregated for drinking, that's the tiger, Caspian tiger. Now, they they persisted until the 19, maybe the 19, certainly 1960s, maybe the 1970s. But then too many people in too many places and they disappeared. What's remarkable, and this is outside the scope of our work, but what's astonishing is the Kazakh government is in a partnership at the moment to actually bring tigers back to Kazakhstan. It's the only country considering reintroducing tiger from the Russian Far East to Kazakhstan. So that's a program that's underway. There's a lot of work to do to establish the whole protected area network around it. 
but that's already working. And and the tiger would probably limit itself to the kind of reedy and wet margins of the of the Caspian of the river system and so on, and would be unlikely to be seen out in the open in the grassland where the tiger spend most of their time. Exactly. So when when the tiger are close to the riverbanks and on the uh, the gallery forest, what's called Turgai forest, then they must have come into contact with tiger. However, as you correctly say, the the main predator on the steppe uh, originally would have been Asiatic cheetah. Now, there's a reason why. I mean, having worked with Saiga for some time and alongside our Kazakh colleagues, they are incredibly fast. And they're probably in the top three fastest mammals on Earth. And the only two things uh, faster are pronghorn antelope and cheetah. And they were originally, they evolved to outrun cheetah. And that's, but of course, that species... The Asiatic cheetah has massively contracted its range. We believe, and it's anecdotal, we believe that cheetah remained in southwest Kazakhstan until perhaps as late as the 1980s, but certainly the 1970s. But eventually, again, because the population of the prey animals collapsed, they ran out of food. So it's not a surprise that the um, cheetah also disappeared, unfortunately. Of course, India has just brought cheetahs back to its grasslands in Madhya Pradesh in, in Kano National Park. Prime Minister Narendra Modi himself opened the cage to let the first cheetahs out. And they made the decision to bring African cheetahs to India on the basis that the, the depth of separation between Asiatic and African cheetahs is so minimal, probably 50 or 60,000 years, that you or I probably couldn't tell the difference with the naked eye. So instead of trying to get one of the very last few Asiatic cheetahs out of the Iranian government, which seemed an impossible task, they brought cheetahs from Namibia and they will be bringing more. Is the Kazakh government considering at some stage restoring cheetahs? And if they did, would they settle for African ones? So we have ongoing conversations on many work areas with the Kazakh government, and they clearly are ambitious to restore as much of the original wildlife to the area because any requirement for predators is that the prey base is secure. It's too early to be thinking about from where or when or how many. But the fact that they're already working to reintroduce tigers suggests that there is an openness to look at the restoration of apex predators. And they're doing they're interested in this as a and we're interested in as a partnership because it's a balance. If you only restore the grazers, eventually there will be problems caused by too many grazers. Whereas if there's balance can be struck with the full restoration of all of the ecological functions. So for us, that's the grazers and the predators and the scavengers. That's what really matters. So I think in future it's it's definitely in discussion because there were originally 10 species of wild cats. In Kazakhstan, now two have been lost, but the restoration and the recovery of the other species is also overlaps with at least some of the project area where we're working. And how much recognition is there among the people of, of the Alton Dalai project area that this could be an extraordinary tourism opportunity? I mean, I can think of nothing I'd like to do more than to get on a flight with my family and to go and camp out on this golden step and to see tiger antelope and one day camels and wild asses and maybe witness a hunt by a cheetah or see or hear a pack of wolves howling at night. I mean, this could be one of the greatest wildlife experiences available anywhere on earth. Do they recognise the opportunity in that? Absolutely. And it's so firstly, the area that we're talking about used to be called the Serengeti of the North because it was so rich in wildlife and was comparable in scale and, and in uh, grandeur, if you will. So the government are trying to 
do the restoration for a whole series of reasons. Having protected areas in the country creates jobs in rural areas where the economy is not necessarily the strongest. Equally, offering you know those job opportunities and training opportunities to protected areas staff, these are all valuable. But certainly, it's very strange for me. I've seen, I've been fortunate enough to see many of the protected areas in Kazakhstan, and there's a rich diversity and incredible landscapes. And I've usually been there with my colleagues, and that's it. So at the moment, the idea of developing nature-based tourism using the existing protected area landscape is absolutely you know, on the agenda for the government. And so it should be, because these are some amazing wildlife spectacles that can be seen. We talked earlier in the series to Alison Fox, who's um, leading the American Prairie Reserve Project. And the goal of that project is to restore and piece back together an area of more than three million acres of former prairie grassland in northern Montana. Now, that project has stirred up a certain amount of controversy among cowboy kind of cattle ranching communities and ultimately with the Republican government of Montana uh, because they see it as a threat to their way of life and, and to their jobs and so on. Is there a similar controversy in Kazakhstan or is it a lot less controversial, this project? Well, we know American Prairie very well. And Alison and I have, we, she invited us and hosted us a delegation from Kazakhstan in the past. So we've learned a lot about how they have been working and we've learned a lot from them. I think there is a very big difference in the sense that what American Prairie deal with is creating a, a suitable area of land from using land purchase and rebuilding that network um, and adding it to state protected areas. In our case, most of the areas we're working on are state protected areas. But of course, the wildlife concern doesn't know where the boundaries are. So there are some areas uh, in the west of Kazakhstan in particular, where people are starting to feel the impact of two things simultaneously. So with climate change, there's less water and grazing can be more fragile. And so for domestic livestock, that's already a problem. Whereas if you then have a wild grazer, which coming back in large numbers, there is this, not fear, but there is this issue of some key people having in certain areas of the landscape in West Kazakhstan, having there is a, a, a conflict between the domestic grazers and the wild grazers. And some of the work we're now moving into is to work out how to well, how to reduce or resolve these concerns and how to make sure that perhaps some people may gain other benefits from the recovery of wildlife, which means that any losses in their domestic livestock may not be an issue anymore. Or we may need to find ways that certain areas are kept, uh, the wildlife is kept away from. So the issue of human-wildlife conflict is coming up the agenda, as is the issue of conserving and restoring freshwater resources. But overall, it is a different situation in terms because the land use is so different between Montana and, and the area we work in. But that's a fabulous project. I mean, it's an amazing, what they've achieved is already astonishing. Mark, we didn't talk about bears. Are there bears still in the Alton Dalai project area? Um, they wouldn't have been out on the steppe originally. So there are bears in the mountains in in parts of Kazakhstan. And it's not a priority species for us because we're focusing on the grasslands and the wetlands. But again, this is all part of the original, what they call the mammoth fauna. There would have been historical populations, but that's not something really we're focusing on now. Yeah, just a reason why I ask is because Alison told me that they're discovering new behaviours in the American Prairie Reserve area by brown bears living out in the grassland in a way that people didn't think was the norm previously. Well, the other interesting thing, of course, for us is originally there would have been the antelopes 
of different species. There would have been the wild equids, the horses and donkeys, and then there would have been steppe bison. And for us, when we're really looking now at the restoration of the ecological functions, the nearest thing to the steppe bison, which is extinct 10,000 years ago, would be a prairie bison from the USA. So who knows what the possibilities are in terms of long-term restoration of these full ecological functions. But what we need to do is, is really work with our partners to make sure that the the viable opportunities are there. And fortunately, because this, the scale of the country is so vast, we really do have that opportunity to be really bold and really ambitious. And fortunately, the government believes in evidence-based decision-making. So they're listening to the scientists from across the partnership, and that's helping to make really good decisions, which creates that long-term impact, whether that be for a livelihood of someone, the restoration of a species, or a new protected area full of wildlife. Mark, how do we follow the project? What's the best website? How do we sign up to newsletters? And of course, how do we visit the project? If we don't want to wait, we want to go now. <laughs> well, the um, we have a website, which is just altindala.org. Um, we also have a Twitter account with the same name, just at altindala. Those are the primary mechanisms that because we tell our story as a partnership. So that's so we we have we hold as a partnership that website and that social media account. So that's relatively easy to track us down and and to see what we're up to uh, as a group. But then beyond that, uh, people are travelling out to Kazakhstan and they are being able to do short visits, even within a weekend visit, going out one day from the capital, and you're able to go into incredible areas of wetland and and grassland and see some of the species we've been discussing. And it is a remarkable experience to be out on the steppe watching Saiga and then look into the distance and see flamingos walking through a wetland. It really is uh, quite an astonishing landscape. And that's quite accessible. To really get to the heart of the wildlife that we've been talking about and really see the full diversity, then there are guided trips that usually take you know, five to seven days that really take people out and they're based on camping or staying in some of these very remote rural villages uh, in order to really get a chance to see the wildlife. And these are a mixture of these state protected areas, these ecological corridors, and even some areas which are, as we do, we there is one area leased and it's technically a hunting area, but we lease it for wildlife conservation. And these are areas where a lot of the wildlife can be seen very readily. So there's a whole series of opportunities and it is growing. And of course, as the population recovers, the amount of places where you can go to see things obviously increases as well. I mean, this is what we need is we need rewilding restoration on this kind of scale um, and we need it now. And this is perhaps the most exciting rewilding project in the whole world. You're, the project is lucky to have you, Mark, and the world is lucky to have you. And you are lucky to be doing this work. It's really extraordinarily inspiring stuff. And I'm so grateful to you for taking this time to tell us about it. Um, so let's please stay in touch and I'll come and visit you as soon as I possibly can. No, absolutely. It's great to begin telling the story. There are so many other dimensions we can add from the soil carbon to the uh, to the long distance migratory species that fly out of Kazakhstan in the winter, of course. There are many, many other stories to tell. So uh, and if you'd like to come out, you'd be very, very welcome.
one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Mark is because information on this extraordinary project is really hard to come by. I find myself Googling reintroduction of Kulan or Przalski's horses or Bactrian camels and there's not much out there. I've so loved talking to Mark just now, hearing about the scale and ambition of this project. It's, it's a place I long to visit one day. If you've enjoyed the podcast, we'd be so grateful if you'd give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you use and if you'd spread the word among your friends. Thank you very much. Next time on Rewilding the World, I'm going to be talking to Jody Hilty of Yellowstone to Yukon. This is an extraordinarily ambitious project to piece habitat back together along 3,000 kilometers of North America, from Yellowstone all the way up to Yukon. It's probably the biggest rewilding corridor project in the world, and they're getting traction. It's really exciting. I hope you'll join us.